podcast one production. G'day, Adam Spencer here. Welcome to another instalment of The Big Questions. Today I ask a brilliant Australian and a wonderful man, hey, what's it like to win the Nobel Prize for Medicine? Peter Doherty was the 1997 Australian of the Year. He's a national living treasure, a companion of the Order of Australia, a fellow of the Royal Society. He won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1996 not bad for a kid from a Indrapilly State High. Peter Doherty, how are you? I'm fine, Adam. Great to be here. What was Indrapilly State High like? Well, it was pretty odd because it was the first of four high schools that opened in Brisbane. Before that, Brisbane had State High for academics, Industrial High, Domestic Science High and Commercial High. That was the whole public high school scene. So I went to Indrapilly State High in the first year that it started. Wow. And there were no older kids. There was no mentoring no bullying, I suppose, but it was a, an odd experience of, of high school. There's no way that they could have expected in their first year of operation they had a future Nobel Prize winner. They, they got they got off to a flyer, didn't they? Well, it certainly wasn't obvious to anybody, including me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned you, there was a domestic science There was a high. domestic science high in Brisbane. That's where my mother went to school. And like most of her generation in Brisbane, she left school after one year of high school. Was that what was that? Was it where women went to learn how to run a house? Or? Exactly, domestic science high, commercial high. There were a few boys that went to commercial high, but on the whole, they would go to industrial high, where they would do things industrial, or they would go to the uh, state high school, which was academic. Now you said it came as a, would have come as a surprise to you at the time too to know you were going to go where you went. But what were you like as a as a student, as a young mind? Well, I was very curious about a lot of things. Um, I was often bored. I didn't achieve incredible examination results or any of that stuff. Um, And uh, I think uh, it wasn't obvious that I was going to do anything particular, that uh, I came from a family that was in the outer suburbs of Brisbane and uh, expectations were pretty modest. I, I think that my main expectation was that somehow or other I was going to get the hell out of there. What, was, was it a household you grew up in in which scholarship was talked about or much of a tradition? Not really. I mean, my parents' generation left school at 15. Uh, my dad was br- bright. He was smart. He was in the Commonwealth Public Service and always, I think, felt his lack of formal education. Uh, he did a lot of specialist courses in the old Postmaster General's department, but he should have really continued at school and gone on to university. He had a good intellect and he was very funny. He had a great, great sense of humour. Died rather young, though, sadly. It's interesting. I, I, I mean, you... You sound like you went a little bit better at high school than one of the chaps you mentioned in your uh, book, The Knowledge Wars, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, who didn't do any science for the last three years of his schooling at Eton. Oh, right, right. Tell tell us about... He had a somewhat more privileged upbringing than I did, but he won uh, the Nobel Prize for for his studies of differentiation and so forth, but but his schoolmaster at Eton thought he was hopeless in science and actually banned him. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but but it's, it's not 
so surprising. Often the people who can do very well in science in the sense of discovering something quite different mm. or, or, or going outside the norm are people who are very are not particularly accepting of the accepted wisdom. Mm. And so often that doesn't go over well with school teachers because they want you to, to follow the line, of course. And uh, not that I'm, you know, I think science school teachers are great, but, uh, but often people who, uh, who make big discoveries or do interesting things are often pretty quirky, actually. Roger Penrose, the great mathematician who yes. worked with Hawking on black hole radiation and yes. things like that, one of the, one of the great physics mathematicians of the 20th century. Uh, I interviewed him once and he said that when he was at high school, he got really average marks in mathematics. He'd never finish the paper because he would just go into unnecessary depth in answers and doodle and think about things. And when they changed the, the model so that they would schedule the maths exams for immediately before lunch and let him stay for as long as he wanted into lunch, completing the paper if he wanted... He suddenly got marks they'd never seen before, and he he, he just yeah. wasn't the sort of person who would quickly finish that question. If something in the he'd, he'd often rewrite the question and go, "That's interesting," but if you asked it in five dimensions, you'd notice something even more interesting for which there's no marks available. That that that, that structure just didn't work for him. Yes, it's it's, it's true, and and uh, you know when we a lot of kids now get sort of these enormously high scores. And I think that shows they're bright kids and they're hardworking kids and so forth, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be particularly creative or innovative, quite frankly. Were you inspired? Can you remember being inspired by science at a young age? It's something we hope would happen to, to young people today, especially a young person with your potential. Can you remember events or teachers or books or things you saw at the movies that that inspired you scientifically? Not especially inspired, but, you know, this goes way back. I mean, I was born in 1940, so I'm pretty old. And at that stage, science was very much at the front of things and people had great ambitions for science and great uh, a, a great view that it was going to do tremendous things. But And, and I... I was in a state primary school, which was very modest, a very working class sort of area. And then, though we're supposed to have no classes in Australia, that's just a ridiculous myth. But, uh, <laughs> and then at the high school got better because we were getting better content and we had specialised teachers. And though it was the first year the high school started, it was a group of young teachers who were absolutely dedicated to making this work. And they, they, were, they were good. I, I can't say I was particularly inspired by them, but I found science to be easy. Mathematics, a bit less so. I never really fell in love with math. And, uh, but my favourite subjects were actually English, history and French. Really? And I thought very much of going in the other direction. I, it, I could have easily gone towards history or towards, I thought of uh, the, the National University at that stage had a had a, um, scholarships to study uh, Chinese and uh, Asian languages, which nobody was doing at that time in Australia. That's thought a, about that, that. That's a fascinating sliding yeah. doors moment, as they call it, isn't it? Yes, it was. And, and of course, the people who went to that uh, language school, some of them became ambassadors, the mm. early ambassadors in China and so forth. So, I, I think we can go in different directions and and science and I didn't actually enroll in science you know I went to do veterinary science mm. which uh, and I was going to be a vet I was a 16 year old boy I was naive and I wanted an adventure and sort of going out on the big cattle properties and up in the north and all the rest of it seemed like a great adventure 
Where did you go to university? Uh, university of Queensland in, in, in Brisbane. I grew up in Brisbane and, uh, and I lived at home while I was at university and, uh, and was bonded to the Queensland government to go and be a government vet after I finished, which I did for a while. Yeah. Okay, so this is Peter Doty. We're talking you know, 60 years ago that you enrol in university in, in your vet science studies. Yes. When did the, the, diff- the scientific research calling come? I went into the vet thing with the idea that I wanted, I, I was an altruistic kid and I was at that stage involved with the Methodist Church and I had sort of the desire to do something, try and do something and th- that religious upbringing gives you a, a, a sense of the need to do some mm. service. And so I had the idea that I would try and orient my life towards increasing food production. Now, thinking about animal agriculture, of course, at that time. And now you wouldn't think that way. You would uh, probably think about plant science because you realise animals are a bit of a problem with respect to things like climate change and so forth. But that was part of my motivation. I had an older cousin, again, first generation in his side of family, but it was a a well-known medical scientist already. He was 13 years older than I was. So that was kind of a model, but I didn't want to be a doctor because the only doctors I knew were the local GPs and I didn't want to spend my life listening to people whining about being sick. I had all the usual empathy of a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> and so, and so, so join the dots from that stage in your life to yes. what we will talk about a bit later, the body's immune system and how we fight disease and things like that. What, what took you on the path? Well, I went, the, the Queensland government, I said I was interested in research. I was actually very bored by the last couple of years of vet school, graduated with a very ordinary degree indeed. But the first three years were taught in the science faculty. And it was the first time that I learned biology. We didn't learn biology at school. Uh, girls could learn biology, boys learned physics and chemistry. We were physical, they were biological. Uh, you didn't want to inflame the boys by talking about things like reproduction. God knows sure, what would sure. happen. And you wouldn't want and, to tax the girls with things like physics. Uh, no. And, and in fact, the bright girls, used to. Uh, sometimes they would have to go to another, a boys' school to actually do their physics. Oh. And, uh, and so it was a different time. <laughs> and so, but I fell in love with biology and it was very well taught in in the science faculty, I would have headed off to be a marine biologist, in fact, except for the fact that I got a very fair skin and, and there were no such thing as sunblocks then. And the last thing you wanted to be is out on the water in Queensland mm. for long periods. Yeah. And so so I didn't do that. And, uh, and when I graduated, the Queensland government sent me to the bush for a while and then they had a grant to do some research in their state laboratory, which is mainly a diagnostic lab. But uh, they needed someone to do it and the guy that was supposed to do it had rushed off to join the CSIRO. So they brought me back knowing I was interested in doing research. What were you researching at that stage? I was researching a disease called leptospirosis in cattle, which is a kidney infection of cattle that causes fever and abortion, uh, death sometimes, uh, a lot of productive loss, in fact, and it was being funded through the uh, Meat Research, I think, uh, Foundation or something like that. Did that and, and wrote a master's thesis and then applied for a job advertised in the science journal Nature and uh, wanted to learn more about disease and pathology, the study of disease Mm. process, and actually got a job in Edinburgh in Scotland as a neuropathologist, a sheep neuropathologist. There you go. So I'm one of the, I'm a pretty, pretty hot guy on, even though I haven't done this for 50 years, I'm pretty good on sheep brains. (laughs) And and so at at this stage, it sounds like you're reasonably down the path to what you eventually establish your fame in. Yes. Did, did, were you aware at that stage already? Were you a good researcher? Well, I, 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 I 
was competent. I was good at it. I liked it. And uh, it was what I wanted to do in a sense because it allowed me to ask questions and pull things apart. I'm very good at pulling things apart, not necessarily good at putting them back together. And, and what, what, are, what are the skills of a, you know, early, you know, mid-20s, someone who's, who would be destined to be good at research in their life? What are, you, what, what are the defining skills they have? You have to really like uh, getting data, getting information. You have to really like looking at that and seeing what it actually means and then seeing the interpretation of it. And of course, back then we knew so little compared with what we know now. So everything was kind of new and interesting and, and what you were describing, pretty much nobody would have described before. I mean, this is often the experience in science. We make discoveries, we make a lot of discoveries, but they're mainly discoveries that very few people people care about. And so I was lucky to make one very big discovery that people did care about, but still it's very hard to explain to the general community. Well, let's talk about your big discovery and let's do what we can to explain as much of it as we can to a the general audience of the, the Flux podcast. Well, the, the the big discovery was made later. I, I was in Edinburgh. I did a doctoral degree when I was there and I was actually working for the British Agricultural Research Council. I was a, a senior, senior scientific officer in Edinburgh. If uh, I had certain privileges and rights, if I had been required for some reason to travel in a mining area uh, by train, uh, which had no first-class carriage, I could have asked to have a first-class carriage attached. So I, <laughs> I had some status, but not very much money because the pay was lousy. That's a nice little thing to have in the small print of the employment contract, can <laughs> yeah. get first-class carriage yes. attached to trains yes, in mining areas yes, at I'd, request. It's probably still there, but I, I, I don't think it would be very easy to get it to happen. But uh, I was supposed to come back to Australia and work for the CSIRO as uh, in veterinary research. I would have come back to a reasonably senior position. By then I was 30 years old. And... Um, and instead, I heard a talk about cell-mediated immunity, the, the T-cell-mediated immunity, which was just starting to come come to the fore, and nobody knew much about it, but I knew there was a good group at the National University, and I asked the CSRO people if they'd mind if I took a couple of years off, uh, got a bit of money somewhere else and worked there, and that's where we made our really big discovery that uh, led to the Nobel Prize. Now, you, you mentioned the phrase T-cell yes. there. What's the... What's the simplest explanation of a T-cell you could give well, that you'd be happy giving? Because that's at the essence of what you did, isn't it? The whole of immunity, which is, is what we use to fight infection, and, and more recently we realise has a big role in keeping some cancers in check. The whole of immunity is, is, it operates via the white blood cells. You know, we have red blood cells and we have white blood cells. White blood cells are relatively rare and they, in, compared with the red cells, but they, they divide into a couple of categories. There are cells we call monocytes or macrophages that eat things, but the specific immune cells, the ones that we, we drive by vaccination or that will multiply massively in response to an infection to deal with that infection, uh, what we call the adaptive immune system, uh, basically divide in the T lymphocytes and the B lymphocytes. Mm-hmm. Lymphocytes is just another word for small white blood cell. The T lymphocytes are cells that have been programmed in the thymus, the gland that's up in our neck, very early in life often, and then come out into the blood and circulate in the blood. And their their job is basically to monitor in various contexts the surface of other cells. So, you know, we're made up of cells. Mm -hmm. That's what we are, tissues, different types of cells. Now, my interest is in virus infections, right? 
Now, viruses are what we call obligate intracellular parasites. So the viruses that infect us and cause in disease in us are viruses that multiply in our cells. Mm-hmm. So if one virus particle, they're kind of in, they can't multiply outside the cell. One virus particle gets into one of our cells. It takes over a lot of the cell machinery, multiplies and multiplies and multiplies, and a million virus particles come out. So it's clear that when you've got a virus infection and when that cell in the lung, say, gets infected with an influenza virus and then you start to get more and more influenza viruses produced and then they get released to infect more cells and more cells, clear we've got to stop that. Mm -hmm. And the way we stop it, one of the ways we stop it, is we have what we call the killer T cells, the killer T lymphocytes that actually bump off those virus-infected factory cells. And is it, did you essentially, was your breakthrough in understanding how these T cells identify Absolutely. cells that have been infected? Absolutely. What we discovered, and we only discovered part of the story, the story was worked, worked out more fully later by people using newer technologies and so forth, because the technological mm-hmm. situation was very, very, very primitive when we made our discovery. But what we discovered was that these killer T lymphocytes get focused onto the surface of cells by the fact that what happens is the some very important molecules on the proteins on the surface of those cells we call the transplantation molecules or the histocompatibility molecules get modified by the virus when the virus comes into the the big problem with the T cell system or the immune system is what we call self non self discrimination we don't want the T cells to react against normal cells mm-hmm. that's autoreactivity or autoimmunity uh, we want them to react against damaged or abnormal cells. And it's something that's happened on the surface of yes, the cell what that happens, the T cell spots. We, we proposed, we discovered that this recognition by the T cell was tied to the transplantation system. Now, the transplantation system had been studied for decades and it was basically the system that's involved in graft rejection. You know, if you put a kidney from one person into another, that kidney gets rejected. And this had been studied for a long time in mice and people have bred all sorts of lines of mice and so forth to discover it. But nobody knew why we had that system. Why would we have a system where one individual would reject tissue from another individual? Mm -hmm. You can think that might be rather dangerous, particularly in pregnancy. Well, it turns out these molecules, these so-called transplantation molecules, are actually there uh, to be markers of self. And then when they get changed by a virus or they get changed by a cancer process, then the immune system recognises them as foreign and Mm -hmm. bumps them off. So when we bump off with these killer T cells, a virus-infected cell, it's as though I'm bumping off a cell that was transplanted into me from someone else. And the great thing is you make this breakthrough and then it creates all these other questions. I read one description somewhere. An interesting question was the the, the T cell spots two things on the infected cell. Now, is it the one part of the C cell? There was a big debate about whether it spotted two separate things or one thing. In combination, We said altered self. We didn't really understand what that meant, but it it turns out what happens is these transplant molecules, as they come to the surface of a cell infected with a virus, carry a tiny bit of the virus, only eight or ten amino acids, a peptide to the surface. You know about peptides through sport. Yeah, indeed. Well, these aren't... uh, these aren't bioactive peptides, they're peptides from the virus that are involved in recognition. And it's that little change in this molecule that tells the immune system this cell has to go. So, so when, you, when you make a, a big discovery like that, 
a big breakthrough like mm. that that also then opens up multiple other really fascinating questions. Does does this question make sense to you? Is there is there more is there more excitement at wow we've solved that or wow look at what's in this room we've just opened the door to and only well, have a vague glimpse of now. The first the first excitement was that you know this was unexpected mm-hmm. and it was big. We we realized you that knew straight it was away. Big? We knew it was big. We knew it was big straight away. I mean it just it was the results were very clean. We knew it was different. Then the question was what does it mean? And we we sort of argued it through. There were two of us, a Swiss guy, Rolf Zinkenagel mm-hmm. and me, a little bit young. Rolf's about three years younger than me. And it was just the two of us working together with a young girl who was a technician. And, uh, you know, just very cheap experiments, actually, cheap science. And uh, we, we talked and we talked and we talked with other people in the group and, and we gradually put this story together of this altered self, we called it, and uh, without really knowing how the thing alteration was happening. And we, because of that, we were able to provide an explanation for the transplantation system and a whole theory of how this thing works. So the actual um, publications that won the Nobel Prize really, I think, were about um, four pages of the journal Nature, <laughs> about eight diagrams and a hypothesis article we published in the medical journal, The Lancet. And that's where we laid the whole thing out. And it turned out as the technology improved and others actually worked out how this works in a molecular sense, we were right. So uh, we made some good guesses and uh, um, we were kind of lucky and, you know, we made this big discovery and then then instantly we went from being totally obscure Mm. to being famous in immunology. (laughs) Yeah, that's like being famous in farnackling or... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask, so you said you you realised at the time this was big what you'd stumbled upon. Yes, yes. When does it first get mentioned as in context of, wow, this could be winning Nobel Prize for medicine big. When do you first, do you, do you, do you start to get a buzz? Because these days, whenever the prizes come around, they say, here's 20 people who could win. Well, or, or you occasionally hear someone referred to as her work could one day win her a Nobel Prize. Did you ever, did you pick up a buzz? Well, uh, w- what happened was we knew it was kind of big. I'd, I didn't know much about Nobel Prize. I'd, I'd, the only Nobel Prize winner I met was old McFarlane Burnett mm-hmm. at the, from the Hall Institute. Great scientist, actually. And, um, and, but he was pretty much getting onto retirement then, or was retired, in fact. And um, so we didn't think about it in that context so much, but as the thing went forward, there was a lot of debate because there were two sorts of interpretations of this. Mm. Uh, and the other interpretation was the most favoured, in fact, but it turned out to be wrong. And so, uh, and then in 1980, this work was done in 1973, 74, Mm. 1980, they gave the Nobel Prize to some other people for the histocompatibility work, the earlier work. And we thought, well, that knocks us out of any consideration. Uh So I thought- Because the field is so broad. Well, they don't give Nobel Prizes twice for the same thing. So I thought, well, they've given the Nobel Prize for for histocompatibility and transplantation. So forget it. And, you know, there's no, you don't work in science because you expect to win a Nobel Prize. That's not what it is. It's about. And so we went on and did a lot more science. And then in the early uh, 90s, we're starting to hear rumours that we've been nominated for the prize and um, just rumours. You're never told. And we'd won two big prizes. We won one big prize that's considered to be an indicator prize 
that, you know, for people that win it, often win the Nobel Prize, the Canadian Gairdner Prize. Like, like your Screen Actors Guild means you're in the running for an Academy Award exactly. sort of thing. Yeah, okay. And then 1995, we hear, we, we win what's called the Lasker Award. Now, the Lasker Basic Science Award is the top medical research award in the US. And it, um, about half the people who win the Basic Science Award then win the Nobel Prize. Hello. Okay. So I'm a Brisbane boy. I'm saying to myself, typical Australian, ah, half the people who win the Lasker Award don't win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> so, so next year we get the call and we got the Nobel Prize. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Talk me through the call. Well, the call, we're living in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, fantastic institution, enormously well-funded, treats kids for cancer totally free, um, brings them in from all over the world um, and, uh, and made big breakthroughs in cancer. So I'm, I'm working there as head of the Department of Immunology, uh, doing quite well scientifically. Things are going pretty well. We're getting publications. I'm pretty pleased with life. Um, we get a call at four in the morning on the first Monday in October, and that meant nothing much to me. Um, and uh, the immediate reaction is four o'clock in the morning. It's one of the family back in Australia. Someone's sick. Oh, God, what's this mean? We better be booking our plane. And and my wife, Penny, picks it up. And uh, and the guy on the other head says, this is Niels Ringitz from the Nobel Foundation. And she says, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Niels tells us we got five minutes, 10 minutes to call people and let our family know. Then they're going to release this to the press. And then our world will go mad. Because I'd always wondered how I would be sure this wasn't some sort of fake because the people in my lab were perfectly capable of setting me up. I've always wondered that because you hear so often with an athlete who's chosen to represent Australia for the first yeah. time and they'll always say, I thought it was my mates giving me a G up. I told them to get stuffed. I hung up. Then, insert name of national well, coach or captain, rang me back and said, don't hang up on me again. <laughs> well, firstly, firstly, you know, this guy sounded authentic. The accent was I hadn't good. met him, but he sounded authentic. And I knew, we knew we were in the frame. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, he said, well, and then there was no doubt because he said everyone will call you. So the first call we get is from Reuters. Then we get uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. Then we get Talkback Radio in Bogota, Colombia. Yeah. And so it goes on and on. And eventually, um, I didn't think to go to the bathroom. I had to, <laughs> we, we, we pulled the plug on. The first thing I called actually was the publicity guy at the hospital. Hmm. We, it's a big, if a hospital has a big publicity arm, it raises a billion dollars a year in philanthropy now. Wow. A billion dollars. Wow. It's got Hollywood behind it, Wall Street behind it, all sorts of things. And, um, you First said. thing I did was call him, and so he started to set stuff up. And uh, by the time I got to work, uh, which was at about I think uh, eight thirty a.m. or something, we, he'd already got a minder to look after me, and we were handling it all through the publicity machine of the uh, of the institute. Obviously, that moment is you know those few hours are yeah. r- ridiculously well, intense. But well, you, your life changes. Day. Your life changes forever, doesn't it? Yeah, it it, it, it depends a bit on how you handle it. It, it turned out. It turned out I'm a reasonably good public communicator. Mm-hmm. And and that sort of came to the fore. The, you know, the Nobel Prize, Medicine Prize is, an, is announced in the beginning of October. All the prizes are awarded in Stockholm except the Peace Prize, which is Oslo, in, uh, in that December. So we're getting ready. We go to Stockholm, we get the Nobel Prize. There's almost no Australian media coverage. Uh, no one. Uh, the, there were a couple of freelancers. Uh, there um, and uh, and that was it. 
the Australian media really wasn't interested. They were mm. all in uh, Oslo for the um, for the East Timor Nobel Prize to, uh-huh. to bellow and so forth. But they they had no real interest, and uh, and so w- we went there and uh, um, got the prize and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, then I'm, we're back in back in Memphis, and then I get a call on Christmas Eve, almost say so you've just been made the Australian of the Year. So. <laughs> Here I am living in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm the Australian of the Year. So, you know, that was when the Australian of the Year was selected by a group of of upper-class guys sitting around a good bottle of Shiraz in a back room in Sydney. Oh, I think you're selling yourself it a was bit before, short there. It was before they uh, did the sort of... Uh, public you know, nominations go through Public nominations and all the rest. So, so you know, it, it, and they always... The Nobel Prize winner, anyone who won a Nobel Prize was sort of picked. So, so I said, well, you know, can we put it off a year? I'm kind of busy, you know. <laughs> Firstly, you know, as a senior scientist, I had an incredibly busy year ahead. Yeah. I had to cancel a whole lot of stuff because of the Nobel thing because that brings all sorts of other issues mm. in, you know, public issues and all the rest of it. And then they said, well, you could do that, but don't ever come back to Australia. <laughs> so, so I'd, okay, okay. So so we were back in Australia three or four times that year and I did a lot of public science communication. And, and you've spoken about your ability to do so and, you, and your books are one yeah. of the things that do that as well. So I want to get to the Knowledge Wars, which yes. for people who haven't read it yet, a fantastic book is, I'd, I'd summarise it as, it's a call for the need for us all to engage more with thought and and thinking about science and what science yeah. means in this in these challenging times in which we find ourselves. Well, I'd written four science non-fiction books before that, starting with The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which is kind of a hokey title, but it's really about how medical science works and 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 what the what the game is. Uh, but I realised that some of my books had a bit too much technical material in them. And I said, I thought, well, what's really needed is a book just about science for people who may not even like science, may even be hostile to science, because what I want to explain to people is what we do and how we do it and, 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 and why it's important to think in terms of evidence and why scientific mm. evidence is it's not perfect, uh, but it's the best we've got because we make proper measurements and we think about it and we publish it and we critique by other people. So I've written this book from the point of view of an insider in medical science, which I obviously am, and from an outsider in climate science. And I've contrasted these two fields because I think a lot of us are outsiders in climate science, mm. but we're really concerned and we want to, as you would say in science, interrogate it. And, and, and how do you do that if you're not a scientist? So that's what this book's about. And, and that follows on you outside of this book have also publicly often spoken about the lot of the climate scientists and the attack they seem to yes, be yes. under and the lack of understanding that people have well, about the essence of the work they're doing. Yes, I think it's uh, people have asked the question, well, why are you as a medical scientist, a uh, biological scientist, I'm rather broad as a biological scientist because of my early veterinary training, I'm very interested in ecological systems and plant systems and animal systems as well as in human medicine. So why, why involve yourself in this? Well, firstly, I thought the way they were being attacked was extremely unfair and dishonest, which it was. But the other thing is that while the actual science of climate science, the cause, the science of cause, 
is in the physical sciences. It's in atmospheric physics. It's in, uh, in, in oceanography. It's in meteorology. It's in glaciology, uh, to some extent in, in, in geology. It's in a whole lot of the physical mm-hmm. sciences, which are really rather different. Um, in science, we divide them up into the A side and the B side, the physical mm-hmm. sciences and the biological. Uh, but the science of the consequences of climate change that we call, care about... Strongly biological. ...are all in biology. I mean, we don't, I don't give a damn what happens to the rocks. No, I said that to Flanner, Tim Flannery this morning. He's actually an, an anthrop- and, uh, um, a physical uh, anthropologist. No, not an anthropologist. A paleontologist. Paleont- he's a paleontologist, yeah. So he cares about rocks. But yeah. I, I said, well, all you care about is the fossils in the rocks. You don't care about the rocks. So I don't care about the rocks. I care about what happens to people. I care about the what food, happens to the food, the water. Birds, water, and, and so, does, uh, so, does, so do a lot of people in the medical sciences. In fact, the Lancet which is the oldest medical journal in English and probably the oldest in the world, I think, is now running a commission on climate science uh, between Europe and China, in fact, that will report back every two years on what's happening. And they're drawing that brush very broadly from from things like heat effects, uh, movement of disease problems and so forth, to the possibility of, of extreme food stress and water stress leaving, leading to war, conflict and even nuclear war. As an outsider, it seems... In a debate where for a long time people have said the full effects won't be felt for a long time. You won't see it happening. You won't notice it's happened until it's happened. I feel in a lot of the commentary I'm hearing these days and reading these days, however, more of a sense of, wow, it could actually be right now. It, a, it, it, it could be a lot sooner than we had expected. Am I right in getting that read on it? Yes, yes, I, I'm, and, and it is happening right now. We're seeing it. That doesn't mean it won't sort of ease off again, but we're actually having a, a rather warm period on the whole. Melbourne, particular, for instance, has been very hot. But we're seeing major, major changes in climate patterns, uh, major droughts, these enormous fires. We've had the Alberta fires this year. Uh, several years back, we had the Russia fires. We've had major fires in California. Of course, we are always subject to fire. But, um, but we're seeing, and of course, the, the most striking thing at the moment is the bleaching of the reefs. And Mm. it's not just the barrier reefs, it's the reefs in the Kimberley. Water temperatures are up there, two to three degrees. And it was said that we would get major bleaching with two degrees and we're getting major bleaching in the northern reef. The the reef scientists, I believe, thought they'd actually first see the effects in the southern part, but they're, they're seeing it in the north. So we're seeing really major effects. And, and that, uh, talking with Tim Flannery this morning, as we were doing at the Sydney Writers' Festival, uh, he's written a book on hope about this thing. He's, he's been a bit set back by this, actually. He's a bit surprised that this has gone so quickly. Let me ask you, however, in something that also relates to another passion of yours and where your original work um, yeah flows on, which is vaccinations and oh, things yes, like that yes, out yeah. of the, your understanding That's a of very, cells. very, very different dynamic. I mean, the... But, but let the, me just, before yeah. we get to anti-vax and all, mm. let me ask you quickly, some people who uh, oppose what's happening in the world of climate change activism at the moment say, look, even if all the science is right, the amount of money we're spending at the moment on alternative energy and abating a percent of greenhouse gas release, et cetera, if we took those tens or hundreds of billions and we could vaccinate countless people against this, 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 this and that, you know, yes, it's an issue, but for the same amount of money and effort in the shorter term, we could substantially change the lives and save the lives of tens of millions of people. Is, is that a valid criticism? 
It, it's a valid point. In actual fact, um, with the development of the Global Vaccine Initiative to vaccinate all the world's children, with the development of the Global Fund to fund this and also to fund treatments for AIDS, we're actually doing a lot better in that sense. And uh, uh, there's the health outcomes for children now in Africa are much, much better than they were. But one of the issues with that is population is increasing. We'd mm. always argued in the medical sciences that if we increase the probability, particularly in agrarian societies where you've got no superannuation or that sort of thing, your your long-term health care, mm. care is in the hands of your children, that, that once we ensured the survival of the children, we'd see human size, family sizes drop not necessarily dropping as fast as one might have expected. Though they have dropped quite a bit in various areas of the Middle East and so forth. So um, that's that's great and, and it would be terrific to see that go forward. But that's not going to decrease the vulnerability of those people to the longer-term effects of, of extreme heat, uh, of extreme of infectious disease and, of course, of starvation and, and so forth. And and basically, if you... Uh, this... The effect of climate change on food production is probably already with us. In, in fact, Tom Friedman, the New York Times journalist, argues very strongly that what happened with the, uh, the, 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 the Egyptian uprising, mm -hmm. then the subsequent uh, uh, uprisings in that area, and also Syria, is very much related to the fact that food became unaffordable due to drought. And in another area that we've seen in Australia, especially at the moment, on the whole idea of people becoming more scientifically literate so they can engage with arguments that they read and weigh up the merits and yes. make important decisions is in the field of vaccination and the movement of anti-vaccination, people who won't let their kids get vaccinated because mm. they're worried about side effects they've read about on the web, etc. Can you have calm, rational discussions about anti-vaccination movements or is it a, oh, don't get me started on that no, sort no, of topic not, for you? Not, not at all. Um, basically, um, we actually have pretty good vaccine coverage in Australia. I think it's more than 90%. And some of the people that are missing out are the people who are sort of in marginal communities or they're not getting good information and all the rest of it who are not getting their kids fully vaccinated. So it's not as though it's a major catastrophe. But we do have groups of people, uh, people into alternative lifestyles, mm. um, some surprisingly, often quite well-to-do people in mm. well-to-do suburbs who are reasonably well-educated, who are refusing uh, to vaccinate their kids. Uh, there are various issues here, and, and it, it is quite complex. And um, it, it, it's it's certainly not, a, not something we, we should attack people or abuse mm. people about, but it, it's a very strange effect in some respects. I mean, part of it is to do with empowerment. I mean, the sense that this is my child, you are not going to tell me what's injected into my child. Partly it's to do with the fact that no medical procedure is absolutely without risk. I mean, we, we can't cross a street without taking a risk. Uh, and so sometimes things don't go totally well with vaccination. We have people, we had a situation several years back in Western Australia where tiny babies or young, very young children who were receiving the influenza vaccine were getting uh, fever, mm. uh, which can happen with vaccines if they're what we call um, too reactogenic. 
they stimulate what's called the innate immune system too strongly uh, that makes a lot of chemicals. Uh, think the body thinks it's being invaded by mm. something and makes a lot of toxic chemicals. And it can actually uh, send a young kid into a fit. Mm. Now, it's not uncommon for young kids to fit with fever. But there's at least one case, I think, where a child was very severely damaged. And so, you know, the, there is a little element of risk in some of this. And uh, then, of course, there was that uh, dreadful paper about the MMR vaccine mm. and, and uh, autism. Now, there's absolutely nothing, there's an enormous amount of work, enormous amount of money has been spent trying to see whether that's true. It's simply not true, but, but a lot of people still believe it. And part of the problem is that once something's out there on the web, uh, it never goes away. And it's and, very easy, if you, if you have a point of view that you want reinforced, it's yes. very easy to surround yourself with what feels like it's, a comprehensive suite of material that's only a small percent of a small percent it's of very everything easy. out there to live in that world. That's one of the reasons I wrote the Knowledge Wars, to try and tell, because a lot of science now is open access, anyone mm. can read it, and, and that's fine because it's paid for by public dollars. But one of the things I tried to tell people is this is how you look at a scientific paper. This is how you approach mm. the scientific literature. This is how you read into some of the, the nuances of what's being said. And, uh, and I hope that that might be useful to some people. But um, it, it's a very difficult issue and you get still major celebrities, particularly in the United States, taking mm. this MMR line. There's no evidence for it. It's, it's actually distracted people from looking for real causes, but the problem is that autism comes on at about the time that little kids are vaccinated. And uh, so so the, the link is in people's minds. If their kid was vaccinated three months ago and they get autism, they br- blame the vaccine. So as, as, yeah. as we wrap this fascinating discussion up, Peter Doherty, let me ask you, with, when it comes to the knowledge wars, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful and admirable goal to want an entire society that's significantly more scientifically literate and, and open to the concept than, than it might be at the moment. But is that is that pie-in-the-sky stuff? Can it ever conceivably happen? I think, Adam, you know, we just have to try, don't we? Mm. And, um, I, you know, my I'm, I'm an old guy, so, so my trying has largely been to do with giving talks when I'm asked to give talks, um, uh, writing articles. I've wrote a lot for things of newspapers, um, magazines and stuff in the past, and, and writing books. That's what I do. But I think a lot of the best communication now, the people we really want to communicate with particularly are the, are the young people. That communication works through through online media, it works through blogs, it works through YouTube and uh, social media and so forth. And there are a lot of bright young people who are trying to make their way into that space uh, from science communication. I, I mean, someone like Tim Minchin is, mm. is a great science communicator. Yeah. And uh, look at uh, 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 Brian Cox. I mm. mean, the guy started as a rock star, mm. then he becomes a physicist, and now he's really a full-time science communicator. So I, when I look at the young people and listen to the young people, and I've been talking at schools quite a bit lately, uh, it's very encouraging. I mean, they get climate science. They want to do something about it. They want to know what we can do and how we can go ahead and, and, and they're going to take this forward. So I, I, I also think a lot of science, it's better, better to, if you actually want to explain science, you can explain it much better visually than by words. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got a nice little video that illustrates how a virus infects a cell and how the vi- cell produces more virus and then the killer T cell comes along and kills it, then that is a much, much, anyone can get it. Mm. Anyone gets it. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. It's, it's really straightforward. Actually, our science is a bit more complicated than rocket science. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and so in, in in closing, it's been an amazing career and there's still more to come, but is there ever a part of you that looks at your other passions and wonders if you hadn't gone down this scientific route? I mean, you've been a guest of the Sydney Writers' Festival this year and very well received. Is there part of you that could imagine you sitting away in the study, building out the 18th novel and having just won, you know, the Man Booker Prize or maybe a different Nobel Prize to the one you picked up? <laughs> Thanks, Adam. That's very kind. I mean, the uh, the one, my one attempt at novel, a novel is truly, truly dreadful. And it's... <laughs> Sitting in the bottom drawer and <laughs> my literary agent and my wife and and the very few people who have looked at this have tried to convince me that nobody wants a Jane Austen climate change murder mystery. <laughs> Next time you're in town, we'll have to get you to bring it with you and just do a reading of an <laughs> no, excerpt. No. <laughs> I think if I, if I try fiction again, it's going to be something rather different. I, I You know... Scientists are not trained to write fiction. Hmm. We're trained to try and try and tell the truth as we can best see it. So, 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 fiction is a bit of a foreign genre to us. And and if you talk to good fiction writers, uh, they'll tell you. I mean, they steal. They steal people's lives. Uh, they lie. Uh, it's it's fiction, and hmm. it's great. So, uh, I wish I had that talent. And I'm, I'm I really admire uh, creative writers and uh, poets. It, it's one of the very few talents you don't have. It has been such a thrill asking you some big questions today. Peter Doherty. Thanks, Adam. Been great. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Questions.